You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob. How you doing? Greg, I'm doing well. Ready for part two of our grantee uh, podcast episode, which is our first time we've had to split split an episode up due to too much good content. Yeah, lot, lots of great discussion on grantee-focused issues in the 340B space. Uh, before we get to that, though, let, let's catch up on some stuff in the news. First, we have to talk about something we discussed last week, so a quick correction regarding uh, Hawaii Medicaid. Last week, we were talking about different alternative approaches to identifying 340B drugs for the Inflation Reduction Act and the inflation rebate penalties. And we we mentioned that Oregon and Hawaii, two states that have had a retrospective claim upload process as a means of identifying 340B claims. That's actually not true for Hawaii, right? Right. Now, now I, I will say, although I'm from Hawaii, ever since we hired um, our pharmacy auditor, Cam, out, out on, on Oahu, he's really taken over the lead on whole knowledge of Hawaii. And of course, we didn't uh, check with him ahead of time. So he kindly reminded us that Hawaii did change their practice last year, although they were doing kind of a quarterly submission, depending if it was managed or fee-for-service Medicaid, the way it went. But um, they did change their practice, at least on the retail pharmacy side. So they have gone with the code 20 modifier. So as we're, you know, as we were discussing Cam and Cam listened to the podcast, he said, hey, just so you know, Hawaii did change. So I guess maybe maybe the thought process is historically Hawaii had a quarterly submission. Um, and so at least to our knowledge now, Oregon's probably the only state that has that quarterly submission process. Um, I mentioned briefly California had some prior to Medi-Cal RX. So Medi-Cal RX went into effect at the beginning of last year. Actually, it might have been, yeah, I think beginning of last year, the year before that, I can't remember. But um, before that, there were some managed Medicaid plans that had a quarterly submission process for retail um, slash contract pharmacy. And so so really, Oregon's kind of got that model. And, and again, if you remember, if you listen to the first episode of um, the Grantee podcast section, we talked about the fact that Medicare or CMS is seeking input on a better way to, or any options on collecting the necessary data. So they know what drugs are 340B from a prescription and a, uh, well, from a prescription side, so they can exclude them from the inflation rebates as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. So, just to clarify there, and um, again, if you have any any ideas outside of you know submitting a quarterly submission or what they're recommending, the Code 20 um, prospectively or the N1 transmission um, retrospectively, uh, we're looking for better options um, besides uh, besides that um, due to difficulty work that covered entities are going to have to implement that. So, just to update there. Appreciate the fact. Love the fact we can update it a week later this time. So yeah, a little more timely. And, and again, shout out to Cam for for listening to the podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he he told me he said, "Look, you got to brush up on your Hawaii Medicaid billing compliance, Greg." So I suggest that you come out here and audit with me next time I have an onsite audit. So I may have to uh, go visit him. Wow, that sounds that sounds like a nice idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Other um, another topic in the uh, in the news. And this kind of tucked into the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023 was a provision around the FDA regulatory approval process for a couple of different categories of products. So contrast media agents, radio pharmaceuticals, and OTC monograph drugs um, are, are now going to be subject to the FDA approval process as drug products as opposed to, to medical devices. And I think this is kind of uh, a, you know development following a, a lawsuit um, that brought to light the maybe inconsistent practice of the FDA approving things like contrast media as either drugs or devices. Moving forward, all contrast, all radio pharmaceuticals, all OTCs, OTCs are going to need to go through the FDA's drug approval process. Um, maybe some implications for 340B covered entities. Yeah, I, um, what's interesting is as you look at these three categories, uh, you know, we've already seen some 340B pricing, right? We have some contrast agents that have 340B pricing, and now some don't. Um, same thing for radio pharmaceuticals. There are definitely some um, with NDCs, Zofigo being a common one, um, that uh, nuclear medicine departments typically have. Um, we should point out that as we've kind of learned and looked at these areas on our annual audits, 
for nuclear medicine specifically, um, if your nuclear medicine is just um, diagnostic, you typically won't have some of these treatment or NDC-based radiopharmaceuticals. But if you are treatment-based uh, nuclear and diagnostic, then you might see Zofigo or Lutathera, um, Axumin, a few of these other drugs to think about. Now, one thing we'll say, and same thing with contrast agents, right? Now, contrast agents are a little trickier. It's been, we've seen covered entities try to accumulate these and split. It's just hard because imaging departments are, are managing them. And, and when they manage them, sometimes, you know, we're, it's not clear on, you know, what the vial size is or the strength is uh, that's being purchased and consistently used and what's being wasted. And so auditable records can be a bit tricky. So the one thing we recommend as, you know, as we see how this progresses to see if we have more of these um, drugs receiving 340B pricing and maybe as a hospital or a covered entity or grantee decide that you're going to start accumulating on some of these NDCs, a couple of things to think about is one, do you have audible records? Or you have good audible records that you can accumulate and then you have a good purchasing process that you can buy appropriately on 340B for outpatients and GPO for inpatients or if you're not subject to the GPO prohibition, um, GPO for, um, you know, and every, everything else that's not a qualified outpatient. So so just something to think about, do you have audible records? Do you have control of the purchasing process to make sure you're compliant with purchasing um, requirements? And, and the third one is billing, right? If you're buying on 340B, if, if you're in a state, you need to know if your state's gonna require you to add modifiers, if you're in a modifier state um, to these drugs, right? Sometimes they fall under different uh, revenue codes on your billing forms. And so you might not be used to billing contrast agents or nuclear medicine drugs. Um, because they're not a revenue code 250 or 636. So things to think about if you're going to try and carve them in. I shouldn't use yeah. carve it because we talk about duplicate. If you're trying to try and include them in your 340B program, make sure you have those three things um, thought about if, if you can be compliant before you do so. Um, so that's my only thought. I don't, Greg, if you have other thoughts around those as well. Yeah, no, I don't, nothing for covered entities to do right now, but certainly keep it on the radar. And, you know, I think every year covered entities are typically looking at you know, cost savings initiatives for their upcoming fiscal year. And, you know, I think maybe historically you you, you may just write off contrast in, in other drugs given in radiology as, you know, it's a non-covered outpatient drug. We're just going to buy it on GPO um, and uh, not really, you know, pursue uh, including them in our 340B program. Th there may be savings opportunities for you moving forward, reevaluating these products as the FDA clarifies the process. So, you know, I think covered entities should kind of put it in the parking lot for now, but when it comes time to look at different opportunities to optimize your, your, your purchasing, you know, look at the contrast media agents that you're purchasing, look at what's out there in the marketplace in terms of having availability with pricing and, you know, entertain a potential switch. If, as you, as Rob mentioned, you've got all the, the infrastructure in place to purchase those on a 340B account uh, compliantly. One product not addressed in the um, uh, Appropriations Act is uh, the the viscous eye injections, the viscoelastics, which I know is you know a common question that we get from covered entities. Most of those um, hyaluronidase-like products that are either used for ophthalmologic purposes or for orthopedic indications, um, out of the scope of this particular change, those you know all typically are approved through medical device pathway and aren't subject to 340B pricing, right? That's our understanding as well. Yeah, and that's a category that hasn't had 340B pricing, all those viscoelastics, um, whether it's eye or um, joint. And so, yeah, it would have been nice to see them included, but I guess for now, um, they'll continue to stay devices and most likely still continue to not have 340B pricing uh, for them, for our covered entities. All right, one other topic before we um, pick up with part two of our, our grantee discussion. Uh, article published in the March edition of uh, JMCP's um, uh, publications, uh, managed care pharmacy uh, publication around the drugs that are likely to be subject to Medicare negotiation starting in 2026. Some interesting, uh, I guess, projections or predictions around the types of products that are going to be subject to the maximum fair price when Medicare has the uh, capacity to negotiate for uh, pricing in the future. What'd you take away from the article, Rob? Hey, interesting. Uh, I mean, first, just interesting looking at the types of drugs, right? Lots of um, kind of anticoagulation, um, uh, diabetes-related medication, as well as inhalers are your top three categories that they've listed. But they really went through spending, um, I, I, you know, Medicare spending, and then also looked at expected loss of exclusivity. One interesting thing I saw is that many of these drugs, even though they'll start in 2026, many of them do go off exclusivity or lose their patent in 26 or 27 or 2028. I think half of the drugs are going to lose their patent by 2028. So 
I didn't actually think about that when I thought, okay, first year is 10, then 15, then 15, then 20, and so forth, that, you know, they're going to keep being additive. But over time, some of these will get lose their patent, get some competition, and they'll actually fall off the list. And un until I looked at the list and saw the expiring patents, I, I didn't actually, that, that didn't register in my mind. And it probably did for some of you listening, but for me, it didn't. I just kept thinking, this list is going to keep growing. But the reality, the list will grow because they can add 20 at some point every year. But things yeah. drugs will start falling off um well, so it's like it's gonna, there's going to be a, a bit of a revolving door in terms of uh the uh the application of the maximum fair pricing another interesting thing i thought was you know in 2028 medicare will start negotiating part b drugs and part b is included in 2028 but when you look at the list published by the authors it's only two part b drugs on the list it's uh keytruda and obdivo and and you know probably the the reason we're not going to see a lot of part b drugs um, subject to the maximum fair prices because of biosimilar competition. That threw me off quite a bit. In fact, you know, if anyone's heard me talk about uh, the IRA or even on our podcast, we talked about, gosh, first two years, 26, 27, all Part D, right? Because they couldn't do Part B. And they said, well, in 2028, they can start doing Part B. My assumption was that 2028, when, all, when Part B kicks in, all of them would be Part B, right? All these high cost injectables and all the infusion centers, surely would make the list so pretty mind-blowing to see that they only have two and it's Keytruda and Obdivo at the first and third spot so you know they are high cost drugs but what's interesting is it's 2028 and guess what year they lose their um, expected loss of exclusivity same year 2028 yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so the same sure. year they go on they lose their patent exclusivity now they still would have to have biosimilar competition of some sort for them to actually fall off the list but so even those two part b drugs are going to be short-lived so Told, you know, without having the data in front of me, I just that was that was my kind of gut check um, instinct is to think it's all going to be Part B, but very interesting information for sure. Yeah, you know, and I think one thing that um, I'm sure covered entities are are thinking about or or will need to be thinking about as we get closer to um, when these products are available with maximum fair pricing is how does the Medicare pricing intersect with 340B pricing? Remember, in the IRA, 340B covered entities will be able to access either the 340B price or the maximum fair price for Medicare beneficiaries, depending on which price is better. But what is that going to look like operationally? Is that going to be a quadruple split where we now add maximum fair price to the WAC, GPO, and 340B triple split that's set up? Is it going to be a um, uh, some type of rebate methodology uh, for getting the, uh, the, the maximum fair price discount? Still not sure operationally how covered entities are going to navigate this, but uh, certainly something that we're going to be paying close attention to in the next couple of years. Right. And, and if you and the nice thing about this list and what we'll do for everybody is we'll put a link in um, the show notes at least where we found the GMCP article. Um, it did look like we didn't um, or Greg didn't have to log in to get it. So it's it's publicly available, we believe. Um, but what's interesting, it does tell you wh where they fall in and wh how many years are out. So if they're at the 25 percent or the 60 percent, which is the higher end, right? Uh, depending on, on where their numbers are. So when I'm looking at 60 percent, I almost wonder in some cases if they're 60 percent. Um, uh, of I think it's ASP is is that where uh, I think it's AM, AMP might be AMP um, then is that less than 340B in some cases right depending on the ceiling calculation for 340B in which case the MFP might actually be better priced than 340B in some cases jury still out we'll see but we don't always have a 60% reduction um, from non-federal AMP but yeah. um, another thing to think about is yeah how because remember your reimbursement is going to be decreased so that actually will take some of your savings away especially on the Medicare side. So our recommendation is look at the list, you know, get an idea of what's your volumes look like for this list starting in 2026 and how is that going to impact your savings and pay close attention to the ones that have 60%. So the list right now is showing in, in that first year, Genuvia, uh, Enbro, and Simbacort. So pretty big, pretty expensive drugs. Those are all been out long enough with um, since approval. So they're all the 60% reduction price, which means your net 340B savings is going to be significantly reduced or completely wiped away. Yeah, great thoughts. Yeah, again, not something that covered entities need to do anything about immediately. But you know, if if you're interested in you know cross-referencing, you know your high-volume drugs coming out of your your 340B programs against what uh, the authors are predicting to be subject to Medicare price negotiation starting in 2026, definitely check out the article. As Rob mentioned, we'll uh, we'll cite the reference in the in the show notes for you guys to to take a look. All right. All right. 
Well, I think that's uh, that's it for, for news in the 340B space, Rob. Why don't we take a quick break and we'll rejoin our grantee experts uh, in a moment here and continue the conversation around 340B program operations in the, in the grantee space. Sounds good. Thanks, Greg. Thanks. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by SpendMen Pharmacy. As a pharmacy industry professional, you know 340B program participation includes complex regulatory and audit requirements that must be managed carefully and accurately. If HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required, and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendman Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance while driving significant savings. It's talking about another um, topic related to HRSA audit compliance, 340B audit compliance, and that's auditable records. Jasmine, tell us a little bit about auditable records and how those factor into 340B compliance. Sure. And I think this is where we start to really see some challenges emerge in the grantee and FQHC space that we don't experience as much in the hospital space. And auditable records are a statutory requirement for 340B eligibility. If you do not provide auditable records during a HRSA audit, you might be subject to losing your eligibility and being terminated from the program. Probably temporary termination uh, until you get your ducks in a row and you can demonstrate to HRSA that you have mechanisms in place to, to ensure compliance and that you can provide auditable records, then they, they will likely allow you back into the program. But that, you know, being out of the program for a couple of quarters is, is a huge financial hit for a lot of covered entities, particularly with what's going on with contract pharmacy. So uh, you don't want to risk being even temporarily terminated from the 340B program for not having auditable records. And we start to see um, some challenges with grantees and FQHCs because they don't typically have the same level of technology that you see in hospitals to support uh, providing those auditable records, um, nor do they have the FTE resources to manage everything that's involved with um, managing the technology. Um, and uh, the auditable records really relate to the HRSA Data Request 3, where you are required to provide a list of all 340B drugs that were administered or dispensed to patients from all of your registered locations, all of your pharmacies, in-house and contract pharmacy during the audit timeframe. And they prefer that in an Excel format just because it's easier to manipulate and, and to find samples and to compare to your purchases. But there are other ways of providing those records, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But it's a huge part of the data request. If you do not provide 100% comprehensive auditable records, let's say you provide 95% of all of the utilization that you have, they'll still provide a finding for a failure to provide uh, auditable records. So it, it's there isn't a percent of threshold of diversion that's allowed um, or a percent threshold of not providing auditable records. It takes one instance of not meeting the requirements to receive a finding. Yeah, yeah, I think. That's a, a great point to bring up because I, I feel like, you know, just, just in the conversations that I've had throughout my time working in 340B that, you know, some people tend to kind of minimize the importance of auditable records. It's like, oh, yeah, we're just going to assume, yeah, we've of course we've got audible records. We have a medical chart or a medical record that we use. But but you're right. Even if it's a, a fraction of your utilization that's omitted from your auditable records for a hearse audit, they could suspend the audit experience right there and say, look, we can't move any further because, you're, you're, there's a gap in your auditable records and, and we can't fully assess your 340B program. And that gets reflected in an audit report as a, uh, a finding and threat for termination from the program. So it really is important to go through each of your universes and make sure that you can justify the purchases for all 340B drugs made where they're given um, or, or dispensed. Um, Purchasing records, you got to got to make sure you upload your or provide all of your your purchasing um, documentation. Um, Megan, tell us a little bit about you know the the struggles or the obstacles that some grantees have with regard to putting together purchasing records. Right. Yeah. So there, you know, there has been in, you know increased scrutiny on purchase review and asking for a listing of all your purchase accounts. So you know for FQHCs and hospitals um, and grantees. Hearses expecting that you're going to provide all of your accounts, your 340B account, your WAC account, GPO, direct account. Um, so, you know, 
you want to be prepared to, to have that Excel ready to go with your uh, 340BIDs that you use to establish those accounts. Um, so where this gets a little complicated for those, those grantee types, so you know, really in my opinion, it's more difficult to run a Ryan White STD family planning site really administratively and monetarily because you're not permitted to share inventory and uh, purchase on a single account. So in the last three 340B audits that I supported in the past four months, two of them were Ryan White's. And one of the Bazell auditors asked right off the bat, um, you know, provide me with documentation of the 340B ID that you use to establish your account. So, you know, my thought is that they're, at least this auditor right away is looking to make sure that you have a 340B account for each separate 340B ID. So, um, you know, again, you're not permitted to share inventory or purchase on a single account unless you're approved by HRSA. So we have worked with some clients to have, um, you know, put together a request for a combined purchasing and distribution model. So what that really entails is, you know, HRSA recognizes that there's unique situations in which shared inventories across multiple non-CHC grantees would be appropriate. So, um, but what that means too is if you have a clinic that um, is, is eligible for Ryan White, Part C, Part D, and STD, you can't share inventory across all three of those grantees. So if you're a Ryan White Part B, but you have four separate clinic locations and you're sharing the same grant ID, you can apply those four sites for one combined purchasing model. So, you know, again, where the, the grantees have it tough, um, and I say monetarily, because just think about the, you know, managing and purchasing on all separate accounts when, you know, the FQHCs and the hospitals can purchase from one site and share it, and there's never any waste, um, expired drugs. So it's just, definitely burdensome for, for those sites. So if, if you're a Ryan White and, you know, ever want to look into requesting a combined purchasing model, um, we have been through it. Um, it's, it's a long process. I would say at least four to six months I've been seeing my clients. It, it takes to get there, but, um, but it can, it can work. One thing I'd like to point out as well is with the hospitals, a lot of time they have a dedicated person or persons to do the purchasing, whereas the the FQHCs and grantees, usually it's someone's job to do on the fly. It's not somebody that's dedicated to do the purchasing. So there's some challenges with that as well when you've got um, drugs that you need to get in. Uh, granted, they're probably not as complicated as some of the hospital drugs that need to be um, procured, but there is a challenge in that it's not, they don't have typically one dedicated person to do that purchasing for them. Right, and the right. grantees, and specifically Ryan White's right now, they're they're ordering and administering Cabinuva, and they're really, you know, waiting and looking at their schedule and not ordering these products until their patients are coming in. So it's, you know, a time process, and they're, um, you know, really cognizant of making sure that they're not over-purchasing. So um, the, the Ryan Whites are really already scrutinizing themselves. Right, and to your point, uh, you're managing so many more accounts than you would potentially in a hospital setting and, and maybe not having the staff designated to it. So what happens is you have decentralized purchasing and you have different staff members managing different accounts and to compile a list like HRSA is requesting in their data request. So to compile a list of all of those different accounts that you have is cumbersome. You have to re you have to know who to reach out to. They have to be able to provide you the information and then you have to be able to have access to all of the purchases, um, example invoices, just to be ready for those HRSA audits. That list of accounts, I think, is a challenge for both grantees and hospitals. And you know, mo most of my audits lately, that's that's one of the first things that I say folks need to work on if you don't have it already. Is 
work with your buyers, work with your folks involved in purchasing to make sure you have that list put together because that's where a lot of covered entities, you know, struggle to track down all of that information. Um, and there, there's no reason you can't do that today. You're going to have to, you know, start generating your utilization data once you get that Hearst audit notice. So there's going to be a lot of time spent on focusing on the uh, the administrative um, or the administration data. You know, start staging the list of purchasing um, accounts today uh, so that you don't have to worry about scrambling that once you get your Hearst audit notice. Let's come back to the audible records around administrations. Um, you know, and maybe I, I take this for granted because I, again, come from a hospital background where we've got barcode scanning, med administration, and we've got automated dispensing cabinets in the hospitals. So a lot of our uh, utilization in the hospital side is, is already codified in an electronic manner. Jasmine, talk us through some of the challenges and, and what we've seen some of our grantee covered entities have to um, work with in terms of producing auditable records around 340B administration. Right, absolutely. And the first thing we'll notice with clinics and grantees is that we don't use split fillers. We don't have a TPA that tracks all of the utilization for us and, and dumps it into the right account according to the qualification logic that we've, we've set up. We really have to rely on the documentation in the medical record by the providers. We also often see paper logs, um, so paper charts where they're intaking uh, all of the drugs that they've received and then they're documenting all of the outs, right? And expired and wasted medications as well. So the challenges with the paper is that, well, now all of a sudden we don't have Excel formats. Uh, it's difficult to, to do inventory tracking. You have to manually count things. HRSA prefers Excel formats and it's laborious for your staff to have to document every, everything on paper. The other thing that we see is uh, reports generated from your electronic health record. And, and we see two different types of reports coming from, from the EHR. And you can either have uh, administration records where it's, it's pulling from the medication administration record itself. Um, so as long as your providers are documenting that they've given a specific drug in the correct field that can be extracted, <laughs> you might be able to pull that information with a query. Whereas we um, uh, often also see um, reports generated based on charges, and we know that not everything is being charged. Um, so there, there are going to be gaps in all of those different types of records where if you're basing on administrations and your providers don't have the ability, for example, to document in a specific field, it's going to be documented in a therapeutic injection field or a procedure field and maybe uh, giving an aspirin, there is no place to document that. Or your drug catalog or drug library hasn't been updated appropriately to reflect all of the items that your providers might be giving that are 340B items. So then you can't extract from the medical record based on administrations. Well, then you look at your charges and you're not charging for everything. So you're also gonna have an incomplete record there because we're not charging for things like aspirin and undansetron. Uh, things that don't have J codes, for example, or CPT codes are not gonna be charged. So you're, you're gonna have an incomplete record based on, on uh, your billing records as well. Uh, FQHCs and grantees have this really unique challenge of trying to build a comprehensive record of their utilization in the clinics. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing some homegrown uh, barcode scanning systems start to pop up in a lot of uh, my clinics, for example. And I really applaud those clinics because it's not easy to do and it's not cheap. No, um, but really they're building their own solutions because there, there haven't been many on the, you know, that have been affordable for them on the market. Um, and, and it's becoming an increasing need with the scrutiny that HRSA is putting on uh, these records of administration and, and your utilization as a whole. Um, so it is a unique challenge with our FQHCs and grantees that we don't see in the hospitals because you just automatically assume that you're going to have a TPA tracking this at a hospital and you're going to have a, an automated dispensing cabinet where we don't have that in a clinic. We might be managing physically separate inventory. So it really is something that's a challenge with FQHCs and, and, and we try to work with and emphasize the importance of, of getting it as close to perfect as possible, but it'll never be perfect. I got to say, um, you know, before we had had you wonderful ladies on our team, I used to do a lot of these community health center audits and I just had a little PTSD when you said paper charts because I, you know, I get the, okay, do you guys administer, clinic administer drugs on 340B? Like, yes, we buy everything on 340B. Like, great, send me the, the records for that. And they're like, oh, we have paper charting and part of me <laughs> dies inside. I'm like, oh, this is going to be rough. 
this is going to be a yeah. rough audit right here. This just went from one and a half days to like five. Um, <laughs> right. So I hear you. It's it's tough. And and I've even seen charges where they say, yeah, well, we got some charges, but then it's like half free text. You're like, how do you extract free text data? How do you even charge? Then you compare 340B purchases to what they actually have, and they have like half of the documentation and another part of me dies inside. And yeah, right. so I you hear you. Check those NDCs and you're like, well, I have no records for aspirin. So this is a problem. <laughs> and I got to say, the best part is when they're carving out Medicaid. I'm like, you know, my favorite phrase is there's no such thing as clean and carve out. If, if you're carving out, that means a percent of your population is not 340 to be eligible unless you're not billing. Right. Then CHC sometimes don't bill or they're in a in a medical home model. So it's they do. You, CHCs get complex there. It gets a little, gets tough. Right, and that's a, really a perfect segue into our, our, our next discussion that we'll talk about in just a moment uh, about billing and, and how that's different in FQHCs. And, and this whole discussion about administration records does have downstream effects with billing and the discussion about the drug catalog and NDC management where you might not think it's quite as important in an FQHC space because you're not working on a replenishment model typically. Um, there are handful, you know, a, a few FQHCs that might implement a replenishment model, but typically you're doing physical inventory. And so you don't think the NDCs matter as much. Well, they do because it affects your billing downstream and, and making sure that you are putting the resources towards managing your drug catalog within your medical record is going to be really important to make sure that you don't have, for example, painkiller as an option or pain reliever as an option for providers. And you're like, well, which one did they give? Because I'm not quite sure. Um, so you want to make sure that those descriptions are detailed and matching your actual purchases. I went through a HRSA audit where the Zell auditor was looking for the Pixis in the in the clinic. No, we don't have one here. Um, you got to kind of look at it like a, a clean site, and then you know the light bulbs went on. So yeah, perfect segue, Rob, with the carve in, carve out. Um, you know, in the FQHC sp space, the majority of the medications are really not billed separately, or they're instead bundled, and you're getting that PPS rate um, reimbursement. What I struggle a lot with clients is they're carving in or carving out. And our pod has talked probably to nauseam and, and our whole company as a whole with this, you know, the Medicaid question and, you know, how it's evolved over the years or actually not evolved at all. But, you know, that question that you'll find on OPACE that's current is, will the covered entity dispense three four to be purchased drugs to Medicaid patients? One of the patient, or sorry, one of the clinics I just worked with, they said, no, we're, we're not carving in because we're, be, we're being reimbursed at a PPS rate. To really kind of, you know, check, look at the source of truth. When I'm auditing, I am asking for a gazillion fee-for-service billing um, claim forms. So those CMS 1500 forms I like to review. The back and forth, no, we're not billing Medicaid. Well, when we started looking at these forms, we would find an NDC right there on the billing form. And I will add, this client did have a modifier. We could argue in their state that they did have the modifier, so they were preventing a duplicate discount. However, they were at risk for a finding for um, an inaccurate Medicaid exclusion file or, or the MEF. After some more discussions, you know, they did decide to add their MPI number to roster that to the Medicaid exclusion file to, to double down and really make sure that they were preventing those duplicate discounts. Part of the guidance that we've seen and our HRSA experiences, regardless of whether the covered entity is reimbursed at an inclusive PPS rate or a separate reimbursed rate, the covered entity should answer yes the question on OPACE indicating that the covered entity will provide 340B drugs to, the, to those Medicaid fee-for-service patients. So we're checking the source of truth by looking at their purchase documentations and looking at those billing forms. You know, being a pharmacist, you know, pharmacy techs, in the retail space, it's nice and clean to see when you adjudicate a claim, but the billing forms and the billing aspects of FQHCs, it's a whole other animal. It's so important to bring in your billing team, make them a part of your 340B compliance oversight committee, because, you know, all those pieces are intertwined and we need everybody on the same page. And now I know Jasmine has, because we've talked about this so many times, um, she has another scenario that would really beg to answer no to the question, but because of the experience that we've had with HRSA, and I'll, I'll let you get into it, Jess. 
Yeah, thanks. And I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I really have a bone to pick with HRSA on this specific question. <laughs> because they had the will the covered entity dispense 340B drugs to Medicaid patients on OPACE. They, they changed the question to try to make it a little bit better, to, uh, easier to understand. And now it says at this site, will the covered entity bill Medicaid fee for service for drugs purchased at 340B prices? And, and the key here is, will the covered entity bill Medicaid fee for service for the drugs purchased at 340B prices, right? So we're like, okay, what does this mean, bill Medicaid fee for service? Well, to me, it always meant we're not going to include any drug information on the claim. So if we're billing at a PPS rate, for those of you who don't know who are listening, the FQHCs are typically reimbursed on, there are other payment processes, but most likely they're reimbursed a bundled rate, a PPS, Prospective Payment System Rate. And that's uh, based on a Medicaid cost report where you're reporting all of your expenses throughout the year and it's intended to cover all of the costs associated with the patient care. And that includes costs that are considered quote unquote, incidental to the service, which would be any pharmaceutical items that you're giving to the patient administering while they're in the visit. And there are a handful of things that are carved out. So they use the same terminology, unfortunately, for the Medicaid cost report as they do for Medicaid carve in, carve out on OPACE, but it's carved out. And typically those would be Larks, Paragard, Vivitrol is what we usually see as a carved out, separately reimbursed item. Everything else is going to be reported on that annual Medicaid cost report as a pharmaceutical that's incidental to the service. So you're not going to be separately reimbursed for those. And so with those separately reimbursed items, we do typically see a lot of carve-in on OPACE because they are billing for that Paragard, they're billing for that Vivitrol, they're a little bit more expensive. They do want to make sure they receive that separate reimbursement. But there are some FQHCs that we work with and clinics that we work with, grantees, who decide they're not going to bill anything to Medicaid. They're, they're going to carve out, they're going to scrub all of the drug information off of the claims forms, and they're not going to bill Medicaid for that specific drug that they purchased on 340B. Well, historically, the, the understanding was that that is a carve-out situation. If no NDC information, no J-code, no drug description is coming across on the claim form, well, you're not billing Medicaid. Unfortunately, some recent HRSA audit experience has uh, contradicted that historical understanding where we've actually seen some covered entities receive a HRSA audit finding when they've listed themselves as carved out, but they were purchasing 340B drug and dispensing it to Medicaid patients and then billing that bundled rate. So even though they didn't have any NDC information or drug information on the claim, HRSA's expectation was that they were going to list themselves as carved in. And this has caused a big discussion, and it was a hot topic, I think, at the 340B Coalition in the summer. Greg, you joined me for that, uh, one of those sessions. Um, and I know that there uh, was a comment period from HRSA where they were looking for some feedback about this Medicaid question. And, and there were quite a few comments back saying, we, we I think we should make this question a little bit clearer. Are we saying if they dispense 340B drugs, you know, regardless of billing separately for that drug or not, or is it really truly only if they bill separately for that drug and you see that NDC information? So it's a really difficult question on OPACE. And unfortunately with HRSA audits, I like to say, well, you don't know it's gonna be a finding really until it's a finding. HRSA doesn't publish anything at the beginning of the year to say, hey guys, all of a sudden this year, we're gonna give new types of findings, get ready. Um, you just figure out the finding is coming if it's a new type of finding when it happens and it comes without warning, unfortunately. Can I clarify? So not a duplicate discount because arguably since uh, Medicaid shouldn't be seeking a rebate on a bundled paid drug. It's really just an OPACE or MEF finding, which yeah. doesn't have financial risk, but it's just irritating. So they did have to appeal a duplicate discount finding, oh. um, and they went to the state, received communications that there was no duplicate discount, and then they were able to appeal that finding. But the initial finding, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, I think it was a duplicate discount and Medicaid exclusion file finding. Yeah, it's, I think that's how Hearst is going to uh, address these, at least currently, but based on how they're, they're interpreting that carve-in, carve-out question. It's a Medicaid exclusion file finding and a duplicate discount finding, but a covered entity would need to seek confirmation from the state that there were no duplicate discounts or rebates sought on 340B purchased drugs. And then we've had covered entities get that duplicate discount finding 
removed from the final audit report, but it still puts them in a potential corrective action plan for the Medicaid exclusion file uh, finding. Hopefully that gets addressed. You know, I know, you know, the, we, we've had some discussions with 340B Health about this, this particular issue. You know, there was an open comment period around the potential change of that carving carve out question, but I'm not aware of any plans for HRSA to, to correct that, clarify that, or split that question to address the issue of when you have a covered entity that's dispensing 340B drugs to Medi Medicaid beneficiaries, but not billing Medicaid for those drugs received. So hopefully that's something that gets clarified and corrected in the future, but uh, definitely creates kind of a pickle right now for, for covered entities that are in that situation. Can I, I ask it. someone to summarize the safe play there? Um, I don't know if it's Megan or Jasmine or Sabrina or Heidi, whoever wants to take this one. So what's a recommendation? I hate to put you all on the spot. Is it just to play it safe, even though it's Jasmine's Jasmine's going to shake her head at me. Is it to play it safe and just say yes and add your N, your NPI your Medicaid number? Um, if un, unless you truly are excluding accumulation, not buying 340B for Medicaid, then is that the safe play? Well, I'll speak to the the client that I had that, that answered no. You know, for them, when you look at those billing forms, and again, you can't just look at like Jasmine mentioned. If you're giving someone aspirin in a visit, you're not going to see that NDC on that billing form. But you, you really need to do a comprehensive review of all your billing forms if you're not sure. And if you have an NDC on that billing form and you have a quantity filled in for the, the dollar amount, you absolutely better um, roster your MPI and, and have yourself carved in. And then for Jasmine's scenario, unfortunately, we have to say yes, you have to carve in. I would agree with that. And, I, you know, to add to what you said, Megan, sometimes it doesn't even take an NDC. I've been in communication with some states where just a J code, their expectation is that you're going to be carved in, even though most J codes can apply to multiple NDCs, with the exception of maybe a ParaGuard or, you know, uh, those IUDs. So um, it doesn't even take an NDC or a cost submitted. As long as there's some drug information on there, I would absolutely say to carve in. And at, the t at this moment, I would say if you're purchasing 340B drugs and dispensing them to Medicaid patients and then billing Medicaid at all for the PPS rate, you would carve in. I have fielded some questions from patients who have asked, well, what if we're giving 340B drugs to Medicaid eligible patient, but we're not billing Medicaid at all, so we're treating it as a, a self-pay, a cash-paying patient? That situation is a little bit different. So if you're deciding to not bill Medicaid at all and you're treating the patient as self-pay, then you don't have to list yourself as carved in for that specific situation. And I think Sabrina was very quick and found a, a really good FAQ, um, her yeah, FAQ about that as well. Um, and I didn't know that FAQ existed, but um, so there, it is supported um, by HRSA that if you are giving it a dispensing to a Medicaid patient, if you're not treating them as a Medicaid patient, then you don't have to be carved in. And I think you wanted a quick answer, yes or no, Rob. Jasmine just explained exactly. I have a client who is a TV uh, clinic, and they purchase 340B drug, but they don't, they don't charge anybody anything. They never bill anybody anything. So when you come to that Medicaid question, it clearly says bill. But then what are we looking at, you know, in the situations that were outlined by Jasmine, where you've got them billing but not truly billing so um it's it's not black and white no i wish it was there's some what? gray in there and i think sabrina should, <laughs> did you have something to add there too yeah and um not to complicate it more but you also have to look at what your state requires some states require you to send over those ndc numbers even if you're billing at the pps rate so just a little more complication to this question Oh, and I'll one-up you, Sabrina. Some states require you not to submit the NDCs if you are uh, if you're purchasing 340B drugs. I think Montana specifically. So good point. It really depends on the state. All right. So that was a clear answer. Thank you, ladies. I appreciate that. <laughs> I hope everyone out there's got that because I'm not sure if I do. Other than I think it means say yes. That's I always yeah, tell I people like that that are new to 340B. Particularly those that are in the in the pharmacy industry, where where we like things that are very cut and dry. You're always giving the right drug to the right patient at the right dose. 340B is not like that. You got to be really comfortable working in working in the gray. So this is clearly one of those those gray areas where lots of opportunity for interpreting things a little bit differently. Gray and muddy. 
And this is really why I love like coming on site with certain clinics because then I can get all the billing forms that I want. I can really walk around your clinic and and find drugs that I probably, you know, obviously I'm not going to find when I'm doing it remotely. And a lot of these conversations just come out more organically and you just discover so many things, especially for our first time clients that are FQHCs or the Ryan Whites. It's really just great to, to, to really yeah. you know, it with you for a day. Because you walk into the med room in the clinic and you can see that for the same drug, they might have three or four different NDCs there. And then the question is, okay, so how are we determining and tracking and making sure you have auditable records? And you don't see that when you're doing a remote audit. You really have to be on site to see some of uh, the true workings of the program. And, and even getting feedback from from clinic staff, uh, Megan and I were just on site and we had, you know, uh, we did on-site tour of, uh, you know, this is a hospital audit, but we're talking with clinic staff and, and really there was different interpretation of whether or not that clinic was on-site versus off-site. And, and you know, th- that, that probably is, you know, an observation that we wouldn't have identified if we weren't uh, kind of on-site walking through the hospital. So it really Absolutely. underscores the importance of getting out there where you have 340B drugs stored and, and administered because, you know, there's a lot of complexity to 340B programs. All right, we're coming up on time. Rob, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I want to talk a little bit about what we expect for the future, um, both for grantees and for the 340B program at large. The, the first thing I want to ask about is 340C. We addressed this briefly when we did our kind of end of the year podcast episode. You know, we've got a grassroots organization out there that is proposing severing grantees from the 340B program and are proposing new legislation under the 340C program that would uh, kind of separate grantees from, uh, I think, a lot of the the negativity around hospitals and the concerns that hospitals are over um, overutilizing the 340B program. Tell us a little bit about our thoughts or our position around 340C. Well, first of all, we don't have a position around 340C. We're neutral. We're Switzerland. That's where we like to be in, in many of these cases. Now, sometimes we do have a more um, you know, focused uh, approach, like with manufacturers and contract farms, who we definitely feel that uh, those 340B pricing should be allowed. Now, 340C, it's got a lot of pros and cons. Um, you know, And so at first, I'd like to point out, though, 340C, because it's very community health center focused on trying to really break out the community health centers. And in some cases, at least what I read was even maybe some rural hospitals and some other grantee types away from the general 340B program. It's a lot because the hospitals are taking so much heat right now. I mean, you think about the New York Times articles, you think about all this bad publicity. And a lot of the focus is around this lack of transparency in hospitals. I think the community health centers are feeling this pressure and this risk that this program could go away or these grantees are. And, and that, that would be a huge financial burden because they truly are the safety net along with you know a lot of our hospitals for taking <clears> care of patients who don't have the ability to pay for their health care. And so I think this is part of that effort. That's why I understand what they're trying to do. Um, and I just want to point out it's 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 the it's a new organization that opened um, or was launched in June of 2021 called Advocates for Community Health or ACH, which isn't direct deposit, just just for the record. Um, and 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 they're not NAC. Not and so I, I haven't ever seen anything that says NAC, the National Association of Community Health Centers, that they supported or behind it. It seems like they're neutral as well. It seems like NAC's focused on trying to make sure these manufacturers, you know, do allow 340B pricing for contract pharmacy. And you know, their focus is going to be with the community health centers. But but here's my concern. Oh, I should point out. Here's what the language wants to do. Um, if if in the proposed what they want to do is have it so that you're going to have 340C, which is a breakout for these uh, covered entity types from 340B. And as part of that, they're going to say that their reimbursement should be wholesale acquisition costs or WAC for all Medicaid drugs. So they're not going to allow Medicaid to take their savings. In fact, they're even telling what they have to reimburse. So I don't think that's going to happen. Um, they do want to protect against discriminatory reimbursement from health insurers and PBMs. Many states already have that enacted. So that's actually not too new. So that I think that's fine. The third part is use of contract pharmacies would be necessary and included. So they wouldn't, so they're trying to get these manufacturers not to do that. So I guess that's part of new legislation that could happen where 340B doesn't have have that. And that's a discussion we've we've had a lot of, so I won't get into it with the time we have, but it's an interesting thought process. I just think right now 340B needs to be focused as one team. We just, you know, the pharma and other industries have so much more power in Congress that by separating the covered entities into two groups, I do think we lessen the strength of the 340B program as a whole and the ability to get things done. So that's my big concern around it, but love to hear from anyone on the panel. 
if you have thoughts as well. I do like the strength in numbers strategy. That's all I'll say on it. (laughs) Severing grantees from from hospitals and kind of breaking up 340B covered entities um, into different factions makes it more challenging to advocate for the program. So, you know, that would be my biggest concern in in seeing kind of a a separation across the, uh, the 340B community. On the flip side, you really do feel for the grantees and clinics who get lumped into the discussion about 340B and and the negative press around it. So I I, I see that side as well. That's I think that's where we neutral. And here's what I I think I said in December, but but I'll say it again. At minimum, I do think this highlights hey the community health centers are are getting lumped in, and you know as we think about 340B changes in legislation, you know, how do we make sure that the CHAs don't get, don't suffer further, right? I think about California and because of the high amount of MCO Medicaid reimbursement where they went to Medi-Cal Rx, well, you know, the CHCs in California have such a high percentage of, of Medicaid or Medi-Cal that losing all their retail pharmacy savings, it was brutal. It was a big hit for CHCs and it, and it made it so they couldn't provide all the services they were providing before and they're still trying to recover from that. So big impacts when you think about Medicaid and reimbursement and everything else that's likely changed by state Medicaid's because of the hospitals more than the CHCs. All right, next next topic, Medicare Part B modifiers. So Inflation Reduction Act passed in August 2022 with the IRA. CMS published a new guideline at the end of uh, December where all 340B covered entities starting January 1, 2024, including grantees, are going to need to include either a JG or a TB modifier. Hospitals that have been subject to OPPS uh, CMS payment rules have been doing JG and TB modifiers, but grantees now are included in the scope of a, a JG modifier. Rob, wh- what do you think CMS is going to do with that information? Yeah, I mean, we, we covered it a little bit on the last podcast, and so I'd love to see what the ladies think as well. But, at first, you know, we think it's it's because they need that information. Um, at least one of our thesis are that they're using that information because they have to um, figure out a non-federal AMP. And so they don't want to include 340B pricing in that um, non-federal AMP calculation for the inflation penalty in um, Inflation Reduction Act, um, or possibly also in some of the pricing for the um, MFP pricing that they're going to come out with, you know, in a few years. So we hope that's what it's related to and that they're not going to try and decrease reimbursement to FQHCs in some way, shape, or form on the Medicare side. Um, and it's really just for pricing, um, but we'll see. I'm not sure if, if there's any chatter on the CHC side or NAC around that. I don't know that the trust is there. (laughs) (laughs) Question for for Jasmine, Sabrina, Megan, how difficult is this going to be for our grantee covered entities to actually get these, these new modifiers in place? I think some of them already struggle with state requirements for 340B compliance with UD or U6, U8, different uh, pricing for different payers. Uh, Some of them struggle with applying acquisition cost. Um, I think it's, you know, thankfully they have advanced notice, uh, you know, almost a year's worth of notice to, to get this up and running. So hopefully that'll be a good head start for them to try to figure this out. Yeah, I think um, I have recently spoke with one of my clients that said, how am I supposed to do this? And I said, you know, we'll work through it. I gave them the December 20th, uh, 2022 letter so that they have it. But I think getting the word out to them sooner than later is going to help them to be able to come become compliant with it because they, they do struggle. Um, and it isn't like those hospitals with Epic that have that support system to easily put in those modifiers. So I think this group that do a lot of the clinics and FQHCs grantees are all mentioning this as soon as we can whenever we're auditing so that they can start the process and start thinking about getting those modifiers on those claims. And and just to, uh, I think it's also important to highlight to take a little bit of the angst away from this issue. Remember, this isn't something that falls within the scope of a HRSA 340B uh, program on it. So not to say that you can't comply, you have to comply with it. I mean, certainly you could be subject to a Medicare audit or, uh, you know, OIG could potentially look at compliance with the the, um, IRA uh, Medicare Part B um, modifiers. But this isn't something that will come up in the setting of a HRSA audit in terms of your 340B program compliance. Yeah, that's a good point. But I just think this just strengthens strengthens the need for that multidisciplinary 340B committee. It's not just a pharmacy program. And that's what I used to hear from in a lot of the FQHC spaces where if it had drugs, just the pharmacists know, know about it. 
Um, so that's just not the case. So you have to sh share share the love with the 340B program with, with everyone involved. Get that billing team up to date. All right, la last topic. This um, really focuses around patient definition and, and the basis of our debate around the potential expanded patient definition really ties back to uh, Genesis, which is FQHC based out of South Carolina and their successful lawsuit against HRSA to overturn um, uh, 340B program audit findings. Rob, what can we expect from the Genesis case um, that's supposed to go back to trial later this year? Oh my gosh, yeah, August of 2023, big date, so we can find out what happens there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm scared to guess on this one. Um, you know, you know, if, even from what we've heard out HHS is more, hey, if, if this gets upheld, you know, or what Genesis is um, trying to say, that's a, what was the um, secretary of HHS say? What did he say? It's a tectonic shift in mm -hmm. a 340B program. And, and I agree, right? I mean, we're really talking about opening up 340B patient definition fairly broad if the only thing HRSA can do is enforce statute, which is which is his point. So he didn't say they were wrong. He just said that it would be a massive shift in in the way they see 340B patient definitions. But um, I, I, you know, as I look at what Genesis is saying, that if you're the primary care provider, you truly are the quarterback of care. Like, why wouldn't you be responsible for that specialist visit, even if you didn't formally refer to it? You still have to monitor. You still have to take that into account with the overall patient care. It actually makes, it makes sense to me. So I, I have a feeling that um, the courts are going to side on Genesis in this case, at least that's my prognostication. Well, I guess we'll find out. This is recorded, real, you know, and, and I can't take it back. So I guess we'll find out come August or whenever that the results come out. We'll, we'll come back in August and and validate your prediction here. But we we need one more prediction, and Megan, we we need a prediction on the Super Bowl score. We're recording this before Philadelphia Eagles playing the Super Bowl this weekend. This will this will air after the game, so we're going to come back and and uh, yes, fact check your prediction on, uh, on and and we should point out before Megan before you go we have to point out so Megan's in Philadelphia big Eagles fan in mm -hmm. fact she's been known to be very very um I don't want to be mean here but 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 a little over the top with her gear on some Monday calls after yeah. they win uh the last Super Bowl if I remember correctly and our our beloved Chelsea Reeve is a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan so we've got a little kind of internal family uh kind of dynamics going on here. So Megan, be careful now. But yeah, I'd love to hear what is the score of the Super Bowl going to be and who is the winner? You know, I didn't really prepare what I predicted the score to be as much as I was preparing insults for Greg, mm. considering he's on like the wrong side of the state. Um, <laughs> so I'll go with my, my son and husband will probably be mortified. I'm going to go with 23 to 15. Is that even a possible score? <laughs> It's possible. Philadelphia or Kansas City wedding. I mean, we, I'm it's not sure. It's possible. But... Go Burgers. I mean, seriously, we all know what's going to be Eagles. We <laughs> 20, all know. 15 Eagles. That's Megan's prediction. <laughs> all right. Well, Greg, we're going to have fun with that on our intro for this thing. Well, depending on who wins, we may end up bringing Chelsea Reeve on to uh, <laughs> kind of correct the uh, the prediction here. So we'll see. Correct it or yeah. provide a different perspective. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. That's the magic. She actually texted me that night. She was like, "Congratulations!" And uh, you know, she's too nice to say anything mean. <laughs> well, I, I share with clients. We usually we have team meetings on Monday, and Monday is probably going to be a tense meeting, depending on the outcome of the game. So you might not find Kelsey and Megan kind of bantering back and forth with one another. Well, Chelsea if reports you, me. She's... If we win, I won't be there. So there's that. Well, well, Chelsea, well, Chelsea said the parade is scheduled for Wednesday, so Wednesday. she says I'm, I'm I'm tentatively taking off on Wednesday. But if the Eagles win, she says then I'll be at work. So, but so if the Chiefs win, she is off on Wednesday. She is going to that parade. That that I always say that's bad luck. You you don't want to make those PTO. You know you don't want to call off already before your team won. That's well, your team we're flexible. We're flexible. So. <laughs> oh, it's superstition. All right. So you're telling me if Kansas City loses, it's Chelsea's fault. It might yeah. be. Yeah. yeah I mean, if she's already, she's already saying she's going to the parade on Wednesday, and they haven't won. That's, I mean, you know, I think that's that's risky business. So. Yeah, bad juju all over that. Yeah. All right, twenty-three fifteen Eagles. Okay. <laughs>
All right. Well, Megan, Sabrina, Jasmine, Heidi, thank you so much for joining. You know, we, we don't, you know, oftentimes we're, we're focusing on, on hospital discussions, but, but clearly there's a lot of unique aspects of uh, 340B grantees and appreciate you guys coming on here and kind of helping us set the record straight and really kind of sharing your insights, helping those, those folks out. Yeah, and I and I gotta say, I know this is a little longer. Appreciate everyone who stayed, listened through our, our whole podcast. Sometimes we go longer, sometimes we go shorter. We just don't even plan that much. We really like like if we have the good content, good questions, like to keep going. And I know I appreciate all of you ladies so much for what you do for our clients and your expertise you bring to our team. Other otters do help with the CHCs and Ryan Whites and other grantees, and we always rely on the four of you to really help help answer any questions we have or things that we don't know as well. So thank you so much for everything you do. Thanks for having us, guys. It was fun. Yeah, this is fun. Let's do it again. Thanks, everyone. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 